0: Welcome to the pastor's Bible class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church of DePere, Missouri to all who are listening on KFUO. The lessons we'll be studying today in preparation for worship next Sunday in most of our Lutheran churches are those appointed for proper A, series A. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning and so we pray today as we approach the Scriptures, we might hear them, we might mark them, we might learn them, that we might take them to heart, that we might listen to your word speaking to us and apply that word into our lives each and every day. And so we pray pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Open our ears, our hearts, our minds to the truth, the truth that is revealed to us in your sure prophetic word keep us steadfast in faith, and equip us to go out into the world and share good news. We pray these things and all others, in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen. The Old Testament lesson for this Sunday is from Jeremiah chapter 28, verses 5 through 9. As you may recall, Jeremiah is sometimes known as the weeping prophet, He prophesied in Jerusalem from the time of King Josiah, who reigned in Judah from 640 to 609 B.C. Remember that Josiah was one of the good kings of Judah, who brought about all kinds of religious reforms. But then there were his two sons, Jehoiakim, who reigned from 609 to 598, and Zedekiah, who reigned from 597 to 587, Jeremiah's prophecy lasted about 40 years, from roughly 627 to 587. His call is one of the memorable passages of the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, the Lord said to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah faithfully spoke God's word. He tried to call his people Judah back to faithful covenant living. But he was opposed and he was persecuted and he was even banned from speaking in public. So he had to dictate part of his message to his secretary, Baruch, who passed it on to Jehudi, who was one of the king's people. When Jehudi read Jeremiah's words from the scroll, Jehoiakim the king cut them up a few lines at a time and arrogantly tossed them into the fire. Another time, Jeremiah delivered a scathing attack against Jehoiakim, contrasting his oppressive and evil policies with those of his father, good king Josiah, and then announced that the king would be buried with all the honor of the donkey that he was. Obviously, the prophet and the leading politicians of his day didn't get along. Today's text is a part of a section that includes uh, chapters 27 and 28th begins in the fourth year of Judah's last king, Zedekiah, somewhere around 594-593 B.C. The Lord commanded Jeremiah to put on a wooden oxen yoke as kind of an object lesson to dramatize his message. Judah was to submit to the yoke of Babylon's rule because God said it was his will that King Nebuchadnezzar rule over his people. He was going to punish his people with sword and famine and pestilence. Well, Jeremiah put on the yoke, and he appeared that way before an international conference in Jerusalem, which included representatives from Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. They were all together trying to decide what to do about this Babylonian problem. Jeremiah's message from the Lord was clear. Don't rebel. Don't fight against the Babylonians. This is God's will. Then he delivered the same message to King Zedekiah, to the priests, to all of his own people. As chapter 28 begins, there is the introduction of the prophet Hananiah. His name means, The Lord is Gracious. Hananiah used an old propaganda trick. He flat out denied everything Jeremiah said. And then he delivered a a message of his own to Jeremiah in the temple in front of the priests and all the people. He claimed his message was from the Lord and he sounded just like Jeremiah. He used the words, thus says the Lord. And he promised that the Lord had broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. And the king and the exiles would be back home in two years. Of course, that was a message that everyone wanted to hear. This was good news. And people tune in to good news. That's where our lesson begins. Jeremiah 28, verses 5 through 9. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you've prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. What was Jeremiah's reaction to the good news brought by Hananiah? He couldn't let it stand. His honor, the Lord's honor, was at stake. The welfare of the people was at stake. And so at first he shouts, Amen. May it be so. I hope that it comes to pass that way. That all of the sacred vessels that the Babylonians have looted from the temple be returned. That all the exiles come home, just as you said. But then Jeremiah's tune changed. He began saying, the prophets who prophesied before you and me, and so he was addressing Hananiah as, as a colleague. He's saying the true prophets who have come before us throughout history typically prophesied war and famine and pestilence against countries and kingdoms. They were seeking to bring about repentance, which would finally lead to deliverance. What has God clearly said in the past? You think now God has changed his mind? No. Our God is faithful. Our God is consistent. His word never changes, and the weight of all of Scripture is against you, Hananiah. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, as Hananiah had just done, When the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Jeremiah is saying, I believe it when I see it. What follows? What's the rest of the story? Hananiah went up and took the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and he smashed it in front of all the people. And then, once again, he used the words of the true prophets to deliver his own message. Thus says the Lord, I will break the yoke of the Babylonians and bring back all the exiles within two years. Jeremiah just walked away from that fight. He'd made his point. But sometime later, the Lord sent Jeremiah to Hananiah to deliver this message. Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. And you have made this people trust a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. I guess the Lord made his point about false prophets saying things that He, in fact, did not say. There have always been, and I guess there will always be, false prophets. Think of the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel and the contest that was put before them and how the Lord devoured Elijah's uh, offering and then Elijah slaughtered the prophets of Baal or the prophet Micah. When the prophets took bribes and adjusted their prophecies to the size of their salaries as he describes it in Micah chapter 3, false prophets who were in it for the money alone. Jeremiah was always confronting these false prophets. Chapter 23 describes how some of them prophesied by Baal, prophesied by idol, perhaps satanic revelations. Some committed adultery and walked in lies and turned people to all kinds of evil. Some kept saying, Don't worry about it, everything's going to be fine. But Jeremiah was right when he said none of them had ever been in the Lord's counsel to see and hear his word. Their words were smooth, their words were sweet and comforting, but their words were not God's word. The Lord declared in Jeremiah 23, My word is like a sword. Jeremiah recognized that the Lord's word can be like fire. It's described as a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. Jeremiah declared that the Lord roars from on high. There's nothing sweet or smooth about his word of law. It's not always what people want to hear. But God's word is the truth. Are there false prophets around us today? Well, of course there are. All kinds of people come forward saying, Thus says the Lord. They're not really proclaiming God's word. They're proclaiming their own opinions and views. Well, how can we recognize false prophets today? Their words are smooth, They're sweet and polished, and usually they're exactly what people want to hear. You might ask, do they sometimes preach for a bribe? Do they contradict the clear teachings of Scripture? Do their words ever really come true? We believe, as Jeremiah indicated, that Scripture interprets Scripture. What has God said in the past? What has God said in the clear testimony of all of Scripture? Has God changed his mind? Is he saying something different today than he said years ago in scriptural times? No, Our God is faithful. In his word there are words of law and words of gospel. And we never like to hear the word of law, but we need to hear it We need to hear God's faithful call to repent, to confront us with our sins. And then we also need to hear the gospel, the good news of God's love and forgiveness in His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. True and false prophets, they still exist. And we need to be careful. We need to be on our guard. We need need to be sure that when a a prophet, a spokesman, a preacher, a teacher says, Thus says the Lord, that it is truly what the Lord our God says. The epistle is from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Paul's letter to the Romans is dated from somewhere around 56-57 A.D., Paul indicates that he was in Corinth. He was about to travel to Jerusalem to deliver the offering from the churches of Asia Minor for the poor Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem who were experiencing persecution and famine. But he was hoping to go on from there on a missionary trip to Spain. And along the way he planned to stop in Rome. He'd never been there. And so he sent this letter ahead to introduce himself as a true apostle, and to give the Roman church a vision of what he believed and what he taught and what he confessed. He opened the letter in a familiar way. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he says, Paul, that's from Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, similar to an ambassador, a a spokesman of Caesar. He had had come now as an ambassador for Christ Jesus. So he was presenting to them his credentials. He was truly an apostle, just like the others. He had been set apart for the gospel. He now serves Jesus. And this letter is all about Jesus. It's about Jesus' power. It's about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul laid out the main theme of his letter. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's letter is all about the power of God, the power of the gospel to bring salvation to all people. Finally, look at the way he closed the letter in chapter 16, verse 20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God's power is there at the beginning, at the end, all the way through. It's the power of Jesus to bring life and salvation to all people. Paul had met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and it had changed his life. And now he proclaims this same power to all people, to the church at Rome and to us. As an introduction to today's lesson, let me ask, have have you ever felt as though God in his law was asking you to do the impossible? As a Pharisee, Paul did. Like him, some people think that they have to keep God's law perfectly if they're going to enjoy his grace and blessing. First they have to be obedient and then comes the grace and the blessing. They try hard to be good. They try to keep the commandments. They try to live a holy life. But the law of God is heavy and they become weighed down with guilt and they fear God's wrath and God's condemnation. They may even become angry at God and rebellious against God, because they realize God expects too much. Our lesson then begins in Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Hmm. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Paul was concerned that the Christians in Rome were looking at the law as their source of life and salvation. If they were good enough, if they obeyed the law, they would earn life and salvation. Former Jews believed in God's law. God's law, the Torah, was good. It was his design for their lives. They couldn't imagine their relationship with God apart from it. They saw the law as a power for life, and so they sought to obey it in order to gain life. Unfortunately, they were so focused on the law that they lost sight of Christ. It's kind of like parents who send their kids to Sunday school. They want their kids to grow up knowing the commandments, the basics, to to learn right from wrong. They want them to become good people as adults. They see the law as holy and righteous and good. But it has nothing to do with Jesus. They've lost sight of Jesus and his salvation and the children's relationship with Jesus. And in doing so, they lost sight of their salvation. Paul wrote this letter to be sure that no one sees the law without seeing Jesus. Because Paul had been there. As a Pharisee, he loved the law. And he knew the terrifying power of the law. It has power to awaken our sin. God's law is good, but our lives are not, and so the law is always accusing. It has this condemning power. It overwhelms us with guilt and shame. And when you hear what you're not supposed to do, somehow in our sinfulness we end up wanting to do it. But Paul says the law is only binding on a person as long as he lives. The law has no power over dead people. They can't hear it. They can't do it. They're free from it. So death changes a person's relationship with the law. He used an illustration from everyday life, marriage laws, in verses 2 and 3. He says, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. In our marriage vows, we promise that we will be faithful until death. But the death of a spouse allows the surviving partner to remarry. Death changes things. Death breaks the power of the law. That's a legal principle. That's common sense. Now Paul moves on to show how this same principle applies in the spiritual world. Death changes things. It sets people free from the law's demands. In verse four he says, "Like my wives, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may be, bear fruit for God. Christians have died to the law. The law, the law of God, has a hold on people. The law demands justice. Punishment, it it demands perfect obedience. We're all sinners, and we're subject to its power to condemn and to punish us. But Paul's point is the law's hold on us has been broken. A Christian is free to belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. God's plan for our salvation didn't require us to die But Jesus died in our place. Jesus performed all righteousness. And now his death is credited to us. In chapter 6, Paul made the point, we have died with Christ through holy baptism. Chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You died to the law through the body of Christ. The law's hold on you has been broken. You're free to belong to Jesus, the risen Savior, and free to bear fruit for God, free to live a Christian life, Free to produce good works, are no longer motivated by the law. Commandments, rules, regulations—they don't, they can't motivate us. A person who's motivated by the law bears a different kind of fruit. Verses five and six, he says: For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members, to bear fruit for death but now we're released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old ways of the written code. The problem isn't the law. The law of God is good. The problem is our sinful passions which are aroused by the law. Our sinful passions bear fruit for death. The law doesn't enable us. The law doesn't motivate us to live holy lives and bear fruit, but the Holy Spirit does. Since we have been baptized, since we have died with Christ, we are free to now live a new way, the way of the Spirit. The Spirit works in us, an appreciation of God's grace. The Spirit sanctifies us, makes us holy. The Spirit empowers us to live this new life. Well, at first glance, it almost sounds as if Paul is saying that the law of God is a bad thing. But no, in chapter 7, verse uh, first part of it, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Well, the law isn't bad. Our sinful flesh is. But if we live under the law, the the law arouses our sinful flesh. Does that mean the law then causes us to sin? No, he said, by no means. So what is the connection between sin and the law? That's what he explains in the next paragraph. 7b. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. In his early life, the law alerted him to what God's will is so that he could avoid what was evil, so that he could, he thought, do good. Notice how he used the word I, the first person singular. Paul restricted his comments to himself. He's talking about himself. And he knows what he's talking about. And that lends credibility to his argument here. So he uses the example of coveting. Paul is saying, been there, done that. From natural knowledge, he knew that it was wrong to steal, to take something that didn't belong to him. But the law, the ninth and tenth commandments specifically, teach that coveting, a sinful desire, was also wrong. He he wouldn't have known that, he couldn't have known that, had it not been for the commandments. And so the law was intended for his good until sin showed up. Verses 8 and 9. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. More like sin lies dormant. Sin is there. But it needs a line in the sand to step over, to show itself as sin. Remember as kids when the old bully drew a, a line in the sand and he dares you to step across it, and you know when you do, you're going to be in a war. Well, the law draws the line and dares the sinner, incites the sinner to cross it. It's kind of like a sign on a park bench. sign says wet paint, but people just have to go up and touch it to make sure that the paint is wet. Is the problem with the sign? Now the problem is with sinful people. The sign was intended for good, but it now might might now appear to be the cause of people getting wet paint all over them. So when Paul learned that coveting was a sin, dormant sin sprang to life. Verses ten and twelve, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Sin is the problem, not the law. Sin puts all kinds of rationalizations into our mind. Sin says, oh, it'll be fun. You're going to enjoy yourself so much. This is going to be profitable. Besides everybody else is doing, nobody's going to get hurt. Sin just keeps encouraging us to step across the line. And as soon as we do, like a trap, it springs behind us. It deceives us. And then it lays out the consequences. The wages of sin is death. You look at verse 11 and it's so simple. Take out all the qualifiers. It says, for sin deceived me and killed me. So Paul raised a rhetorical question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become Sinful beyond measure, the law condemns, but it serves a good purpose. The law checks the coarse outbursts of sin, like a curb on the side of the road. A car is going down it, the driver loses control, he veers off to one side and he hits the curb, and the curb forces him back into the center. He goes too far the other direction and the curb is there to to push him back into the center. It checks the coarse outbursts of sin in the world all around us. The law shows us how serious our sin is. It's, it's like a mirror. When I look into a mirror in the morning when I'm shaving, it really doesn't do me any favors. It, it shows every, every scratch, every wrinkle, every flaw, every pimple. It works like a mirror to show me myself as I really am. So the law of God works like a mirror to show me how serious my condition is. I am a sinner, and it calls me to repent. The law shows us ultimately our need for a Savior, for Jesus. We cannot do it by ourselves. It shows us Jesus who died for us and set us free from the condemnation of of death. It shows us Jesus who died for us and by his death brings us life. By the law, the Holy Spirit reveals to us how to respond to our Savior, how to live a holy life. Now that we have been baptized and we have this new life and the Spirit is at work within us and we are dead to sin, how do we live a holy life? How do we produce good fruit? So the law serves as a rule, laying out this is God's will and empowering us to live according to it. As Christians, we're free from the law, but we're free to live according to the law. The Holy Gospel is from Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 to 42. And again, we need to put it into its context. This is part of our Lord's missionary discourse. We've been hearing this in the gospel readings for the last few weeks. This discourse begins in chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Our Lord's mission. He went through the city's teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing Every disease, that's the work which he had come into the world to do. So as he looked at the people around him, he had compassion on them. This was a deep gut feeling. He saw that these people were helpless and they were hopeless. You know, it must have been at harvest time. Because as he's walking down the road, he saw this bountiful harvest, wheat growing all around him. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I learned about harvest time in rural America in my first congregation. Arrived in the summer, and that fall, I I witnessed the first harvest. There was an urgency within the entire community. Farmers worked long hours from way before dawn to well after dusk. They were out there in the fields constantly, lest any of that precious grain be lost. And everyone was engaged. The old men who had retired were now driving wagons. The women were all gathering together, and they were preparing five meals a day for those engaged in the harvest. Kids got out of school early or didn't go to school at all because they were involved in the harvest too. And while it was long and hard work, there was a spirit of joy and thanksgiving and hope when that crop was finally in the bin. Jesus put this vision before his church of all times. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He said, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest fields. He's telling his people, look, all around us there are people who need to hear the good news. This was why he had come into the world. He had deep compassion for all people, and he wanted them all to be gathered in. But, of course, the laborers are few. and So he said, pray. Pray because his mission is urgent. Pray because everyone needs to be engaged in his mission. We need to go about our mission with joy and thanksgiving. Pray earnestly about the mission. But be careful what you pray for. For we know the Lord does hear and answer our prayers. He heard their prayers and he sent out labors. He, he sent them out. They were the answer to the prayer. When we pray, we need to be careful because he might, no, he will send you into the harvest fields, into your family, into your friendships, into your neighborhood, into your workplaces because he sees the harvest. He sees those who need to hear good news. He's passionate, compassionate about them all. As chapter 10 begins, Jesus called 12, and he gave the names of them, as we heard. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to heal every affliction. He gave them instructions on how they were to conduct themselves as his ambassadors, and then he sent them out on a mission like his own. Their instructions were to teach and to preach and to heal. Then he warned them that they were going to face opposition. They would be persecuted, but he told them not to be afraid. He assured them that no matter what happened to them, God loved them. God would be with them, and he promised that he would acknowledge them before his Father in heaven. Then comes our text, Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There was no sugarcoating what they might expect out there in the world as his representatives. Well, yes, Jesus had come to be the Prince of Peace. On the night of his birth, the angels announced, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We're assured over and over again that he came to reconcile us sinners to God, making peace by the blood of his cross. And earlier in chapter 10, verse 13, he instructed the disciples to bestow his peace on houses that received them. But now he said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Perhaps it would be better translated, Don't think that I have come only to bring peace on earth. I have not come only to bring peace, but even more so, a sword. Jesus said that he will cause divisions between people. Some people will hear his gracious invitation, repent and believe the good news. Others will hear it, but because of their own sin, their prideful stubbornness, they'll reject him. And the family, the most basic unit of human existence, is going to be affected. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, in-laws will become separated because one will confess Jesus and the other reject him. And of course, there'll be eternal consequences. The Jews believe that on the day of the Lord, there would be this kind of division within families, and so it's almost as if Jesus was saying to them, the kingdom of God you've been waiting for has come, and look, it's splitting homes and families. Whenever an important issue, a great cause emerges, it's bound to divide people, some on each side. We're certainly seeing that kind of division in our society today. Political divisions, liberals versus conservatives, racial tension, law enforcement policies. Are we to continue in isolation or is it time to open up our communities? What are we supposed to do about the economy? And people are taking strong positions. You look at what's going on on Facebook and in social media, and the division seems so intense. Well, to be confronted with Jesus is also divisive. People are confronted with a choice. Either receive him, believe in him, or reject him. And the world is always going to be divided over him. It becomes particularly hard when this division is within our own families. There are accounts of parents who have disowned their children when they become Christians, some even performing mock funerals, declaring their, their children dead to them because of their faith in Jesus. Stories of children who leave home and reject their parents. Rejecting everything that they had ever valued because they want nothing more to do with Jesus or with his church. And there are accounts of husbands and wives, marriages that fail and end in divorce when one spouse forbids the other to participate in the church or makes it difficult to go to worship. Sometimes, even issuing an ultimatum, it's me or Jesus, you decide. There's no question Jesus has led to difficult conversations around dinner tables. Religion, our faith, is supposed to be one of those forbidden topics that we're not supposed to talk about, but Jesus sent us out to talk about it. How are we as Christians supposed to respond in the midst of this division? Do we deliberately pick the fight? Do we reject members of our family? Do we shun those who disagree with us? Christians are to be more loving, more patient, in the hope of winning them over, that they may be one, as Peter says, without a word, by our example. It's not that we agree with them, not that we submit to their views. In those cases, we must love Jesus more than father, mother, son, daughter, But our goal in dealing with those who disagree with us must always be to win them over, to help them see Jesus. That's why he sent us. Jesus continued in verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the first reference in the Gospel of Matthew to a cross. His readers all knew what a cross was. When the the Roman general Varus broke the revolt of Judas of Galilee in 4 BC, he crucified 2,000 Jews and he placed all of those crosses along the roads. Everyone saw, everyone knew they had seen people die in agony they probably these words probably struck some fear into those disciples things got real serious in a big hurry jesus is saying there is no middle ground the cost of discipleship can be high it can cost us marriages and families and friendships and the loss of everything we own and even our own lives but jesus promised Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he continued, Matthew 10, verses 40 through 42. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he's a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus would face opposition, and his disciples would too. In chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. They could anticipate that what happened to Jesus would happen to them. And every generation of Christians, all of those who are sent, have had to face this same kind of opposition. We think of missionaries sent to foreign countries all over the world to to live and minister among hostile peoples, and how many of them sacrifice their lives for the sake of the gospel? And pastors... The sacrifices they made to, to, to become pastors in the first place and, and to minister in congregations and communities who, who reject their words, it, it's hard at times. I've seen it. And every Christian who's called to confess the truth in the midst of uh, things that are in, uh, unpopular, they, they stand up for what they know is right. In other words, these words are for you. But at the end of this missionary discourse, there's a turn, there's there's an encouraging word, there's a promise. Jesus identified with his disciples as he sent them out in mission. He says, so does his heavenly Father. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. A disciple, a Christian, is joined to Jesus, and he will be with them. To such an extent that, that when people receive these proclaimers and believe their message, they're receiving Jesus himself. This is the same promise that Jesus made in his last words to them in, in the Gospel of Matthew and the, the Great Commission. He sent them out to make disciples of all nations, and then he promised Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This promise still stands in his church today as we seek to carry out our mission. Jesus spoke about prophets and righteous persons and little ones, his disciples. He wasn't designating different groups or ranks of Christians. He was talking about the same people. Prophets receive a direct revelation from God. As we heard in the Old Testament lesson today, Jeremiah had a direct word, thus says the Lord. So did the apostles. They went out to speak Jesus' word. But so do we. In Holy Scripture, we have a direct revelation from God. We speak his prophetic word. Jesus talked about righteous persons. These are people who are made righteous because Jesus has performed all righteousness for them, and now they seek to live righteous lives in the world. He talked about little ones. Little ones are vulnerable. They're subject to attack. They may seem insignificant in the eyes of the world around them. First those disciples... And later, missionaries and ordained people who were sent out to proclaim claim the gospel, little ones in the eyes of the world, but we're missionaries sent by him. We may be insignificant in the eyes of the world, but in his eyes, we are his spokesmen. We are eternally significant. Jesus said, whoever welcomes, whoever receives them, whoever believes their word welcomes him, receives him, and whoever welcomes him earns a profit-reward. There's a Jewish concept called Shalia, which regards the king's emissary as if he were the king. The concept is still practiced today. Governments send an ambassador for a, to a foreign country And they consider the way in which that country treats their ambassador as though they were treating the nation itself. Or we think of a parent who considers any gift given to their child as a gift to the parent himself. So Jesus is saying, whoever welcomes you, welcomes me. And even a cup of cold water, the smallest of gifts, a gift anyone can give, Jesus doesn't want you to think for even a moment that there is nothing that you can do. You know, we we may not all be called to be great preachers and deliver wonderful sermons. Not all of us are called to travel to faraway lands and and visit and proclaim the gospel to, to different people who don't know Jesus. Not all of us can be Sunday school teachers. Not all of us are called to be officers within the congregation. But we are called by Jesus to support, to encourage, to pray for those who do. In his kingdom, even the water boy becomes the hero. God receives and praises even the smallest contribution You remember the widow and her two copper coins? She gave the greater gift because she gave all that she had. In Luke 10, verse 16, Jesus said, Whoever listens to you listens to me. And whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Suggesting that this is more than just an issue of hospitality. It means whoever welcomes his sent ones, because they believe their words, whoever believes the word will not lose eternal life. The point of this entire missionary discourse is to remind us that we're sent. We've been sent by God to speak his word into the world around us today. We're sent to be faithful prophets, to be sure that we can stand up and say, thus says the Lord, as Jeremiah did. We have a source of authority. It's not just our opinion. We don't just express our, our, our views, our hopes of what might be. We might not tell people what they want to hear. But we speak God's word. That word is the source of our authority. That's why we we speak and think and act and do as we do, because it's God's word. But when we do so, we can expect opposition and division and persecution. But we need not be afraid. For as we go out into the world today, the Lord himself is with us and he his promises to us never change they remain he remains true you will not lose your reward well those are the lessons and i pray that god would richly bless you as you continue to study them and prepare for worship next sunday and may the blessing of almighty god rest upon you as you gather in his house for worship to hear this word proclaimed from the pulpit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you in favor and give you peace. Amen.